tonight as we have the missionary guest with us. Seek Burks, hope that you'll come and be in our service, please. This morning in Romans chapter 6, I speak to you on Christian living depends on Christian learning. And uh, that's really taken from the text of which we'll read. But let me draw your attention to the first 14 verses. I normally would not read this many verses in a Sunday morning service. I don't think it's healthy because after I get through about three, most folks just sort of, you know, drift off to no-no land. So you don't usually do that. And in homiletics, you were taught never, ever, never to take more than six verses in a Sunday morning service. 14 in the evening and Wednesday you can take 150 and it's okay but not Sunday morning or Sunday night but anyway break all the rules of homiletics let me read verse 1 chapter 6 what shall we say then question shall we continue in the sin that grace may abound God forbid how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin." Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him, no more authority. Verse 10, for in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed into sin, and alive but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. Someone referred to this chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 6, as the curriculum for life. And I think they have it down pretty well. I think they understood what chapter 6 is all about, these 23 verses that make up this chapter. And uh, you and I very much live in what I call an enlightened age. There's no doubt about how enlightened our society and our country is. The fact of the matter is people are masters of some amazing things. I saw a program the other night of a video of a program. I think it was called uh, Marvels or something, you know, uh, Magnificent Marvels or something. And what he was doing about all these things that men have created and uh, how much dirt they can move. I mean, my goodness, some of the things they did was unbelievable and almost impossible from human to comprehend. But that some man had sitting down at a drawing board and an engineer had designed this thing and move a half a mountain at one swipe. And uh, it was just incomprehensible what they could do. Point is, a uh, man is, has mastered those massive machines. He's also mastered, in a large degree, science. It's amazing what what can be done now. I mean, it is absolutely amazing. I uh, listened again to a report two weeks ago about this little camera they get you now when they want to check the inside of your stomach without doing this export ordeal. They just drop this little camera in there and you swallow that job and they show it up on screen. Everything's going on down there. Amazing. Amazing. Now, I don't swallow any pills, and I'm a little reluctant to swallow any pill anymore if I just camera with it. But the fact is, it's just amazing that science and what it's done. But uh, we've mastered that to a large degree. We've also mastered government, you know, politics. My goodness, 
people can play politics with so much of so many things in our society and know how to play the game. Uh, you know, with all that we have seen come out of Massachusetts of late, <laughs> gay and lesbian marriages, the same-sex marriages, uh, the Chappaquiddick kid, and now with John Kerry. Let me tell you, don't trust anything that comes out of Massachusetts. Nothing. Nothing. A dangerous world when Massachusetts gets to dictate what happens to the rest of the country, as they've proven in the last few weeks. So may God have mercy on Massachusetts. But men have mastered politics, and they know how to play the game, and they become career politicians, and they finagle the system and work it in their favor. And in the end, government does not work well. Government is not working well now in America. And it's not working well because too many people are playing the system to their own benefit and to their own advantages. And when a country loses in its representatives the zeal for the protection of its peoples and get more interested in individual rights and privileges, then you lose a lot of what this whole thing started for. Consequently, man has mastered that. It's interesting. We've mastered politics and science and these massive machines. But what man has never done is he has not learned to master himself. He cannot. He can master all these things, and he can master a lot of ingenuity and in scientific technology, but he can't master it himself. And it's a, a provable fact that our country is running out of jail space, prison space, and they can't buy up land and build buildings fast enough to put people away in them. What's the problem here? Man cannot master himself. Man cannot take care of himself. He can't control himself. He does what he does out of his will and wishes, and there's something that's missing that helps him control that. I hope you know, and I'm sure you do, that salvation, and the Christian life really, salvation is the beginning point. And what happens, a person, once they have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a change in a person's life that takes place, but even that will not take care of him mastering himself. Just because you're saved does not mean you're going to live a perfect, sinless life. You need more help. Something else has to happen. And the Bible sets forth in precedent and principle that what happens to mankind in order to keep him out of prison and out of jail and at least get him on the right track is that he comes face to face with the gospel of Jesus Christ and trusts Christ as Savior. Step one. But step two is equally as important in the sense that if he wants to be something other than what he is. The Bible puts it in this language. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 17. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things before, Beware, lest ye also being led away with the error of the wicked fall into your own steadfastness, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. He said, but grow in grace. You may be steadfast in the faith at this point. You may be certain of heaven. You may be sure you're going there. But there's another stage to this thing, and that is you've got to grow. You've got to mature. You can't sit where you sat when you got into the Christian life. Too many people fall out of bed because they get in too close to where, or they stay too close to where they got in. And that happens to be the same thing in the Christian life. Too many, many, many people walk down an aisle, trust Christ as Savior, and sit right there. And then they fall out a few years later and people say, well, what happened to them? What, why aren't they faithful? Why aren't they where they ought to be? Because they stayed too close to where they got in. And consequence is that in the Christian life, there are folks who do not grow in grace and knowledge. The only knowledge they get is what they get when they come to Sunday school and church, and not many come to Sunday school. So the fact is, it's what they get in church. That's about it. They don't read their Bible every day, and they don't sit down and spend any time in prayer every day, and they don't read any good Bible-believing, teaching books, and therefore they have no expanded knowledge of anything other than what they hear at church. 
I'm saying to you, by the way, I want you to, and hope you do, read the daily bread, but that's not enough to grow spiritually. That's not enough. That may give you a good thought for the day, but that's not going to get you your roots of your spiritual life and your spiritual being down deep enough into the soil of who you ought to be and what you ought to be to weather the things that life's going to throw at you. So the fact is that we somehow try to get instant everything and we hope for a second we just read one verse in the morning and hit off for the world and everything will be hunky-dory. That's not the way the program works. And we have to come back to what the Scriptures teach. It not only teaches that you grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but Romans chapter 6 in a sense is going to tell you that you have to grow in knowledge of sin and how it operates in the believer's life and what the believer needs to do about it. Remind yourself of this. Justification, which we have dealt with for the first five chapters, deals with the penalty for sin. That's what the first five chapters of Romans are about. Justification by faith, and it's dealing with the penalty of sin. When Christ died on the cross, He died to take away the penalty for sin. So when somebody believes on the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, that penalty is transferred from from them to Christ. They're no longer under that condemnation. So that's what the first five chapters are about. When you come to chapter 6, the program changes. In chapter 6, sanctification is the centerpiece. Sanctification deals with the presence and the power of sin in a believer's life. And chapter 6 of Romans deals with that very issue. The fact is the word sanctification does not appear in the 23 verses of chapter 6. But the words that do appear that indicate that very truth are two. First, you find one in verse number 19. In verse number 19, note carefully in verse 19, it says, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh, for as ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness, and the word is unto holiness. In verse number 19, and then again in verse number 22, but now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. The fact is, the Bible teaches and is teaching with these two words, these two phrases, and these two verses in chapter 6 of Romans that there is a need for every Christian to be mastered in regard to their sin. And the way it's going to work is it's not going to be that you're just going to get to a point where you know so much and you've grown so much as a, as a person in how many years you've been saved that it just all automatically happens. That's not what this text of Scripture is going to tell you. I'd say to you that it's a far cry from that. What our present-day climate of religion does not speak much about is holiness and sanctification. If you were to attend a Nazarene church, you'd hear about sanctification all the time because Nazarene brethren believe in a second work of grace, and their ideal is that sanctification actually gets you to a point where you can be almost sinless, which the Bible does not teach. But nonetheless, they do teach sanctification, but just not what we believe the Bible teaches. Here's what's happening in our country. It says, and it does happen, and we have documented proof we could prove it. It, People will get up and say, come to Jesus Christ to save you from hell, and then go back and do what what you've always done, and thank Jesus that he saved you. That's a direct quote out of a passage of Scripture. Two or three three weeks ago, uh, even in in a place not far from here, very frankly, in Indianapolis, Indiana, there was a a meeting, a rock group, Christian rock group. A Christian rock group got on a stage in in an auditorium stage setting, and they did their concert. And then as the invitation came time, that is, they they were a Christian rock group, so they evidently felt they needed to give an invitation. So this Christian rock group gave an altar call, and and the altar call was built around the two or two or three words, to take Jesus 
Just come and take Jesus. That was the phrase the guy used. And then he said this. Then he told them to go back to what they were doing because it does not matter because now you're going to heaven. I don't believe that guy ever read Romans chapter 6. You forgive me, but I don't believe that guy even knew there's a book of Romans. That's not what the Bible teaches. That violates the very spirit of 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Listen to me. Don't you come to Jesus unless you want to be changed. Don't come to Jesus unless you want to be changed. If you're a happy camper in the life you're living, stay a happy camper. Don't waste your time coming to Jesus Christ. But if you're sick and tired of being sick and tired of this kind of life and the lifestyle you've lived and see that it's going nowhere and it's a blind alley and you're sick of it, then it's time for you, my friend, to take note. Jesus Christ came and died for you. And He's willing to save you and to change your life. I would remind you, I would remind you that Jesus Christ, Matthew chapter 1, 21 says this, Jesus Christ said this, and she shall bring forth a son, and uh, thou shalt call his name Jesus. He didn't say it. This is about it. She shall bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. He didn't say he'll save his people in their sins. The whole ideal of the verse and the grammar that sets it apart is to say, when He saves you, He takes you from that and moves you over here. He does not save you and tell you to go back and live like you've always lived. He doesn't say, well, yeah, you just be saved. That's, that's what's important, going to heaven. That's the big deal here. Well, no, that's not all the big deal is. That's not the big deal in fact at all. The big deal is not just you going to heaven. You know what the big deal is? And we miss it so much in our Baptist churches because we tend to get in the peripheral things. The big deal is that your life is to glorify God. That's the big deal. And the sad thing is most folks don't care about that. Most people care about number one. Glorifying God's not on the list, at least not in the first five. They're interested in me and myself and I and all that I enjoy. What about God? Listen, the fact of the matter is any Christian who knows that the word ought to understand this statement and embrace it. If it meant me going to hell to glorify God, then send me to hell. Remember anybody who said that? The Bible. Sure. There are people in the Bible who said, look, if it would bring more glory to God in essence, you just send me to hell. That's, that's If it'll bring you the most glory. You do with me whatever is your pleasure. We haven't gotten there yet. This, this is America. This is me, myself, and I land. And we want it our way and do our thing. And we don't care what else has to be shoved around or changed, but we want it our way. I'm telling you, that's so foreign to what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the ultimate thing for every person is to glorify God. And the thing about that is glorifying God does not mean because you're going to heaven, God gets glorified. You know what glorifies God? It's for you to stay here on this earth and live as much like God as is humanly possible. That glorify God. When people see you and then think of Him, you've done your job. When they think, see you and think about the world, you have failed miserably. They say, oh, they're just like everybody else. <laughs> they go to the same places, do the same thing, wear the same clothes, act the same way, watch the same television, go to the same movies, watch the same videos, DVDs. They do the same thing. There are no differences. Okay, I say to you again, if Jesus Christ does not make a difference, stick with what you've got. If that's what you want, if you want to know difference, then stick with what you've got. Please, don't, don't get this 
fabricated idea that, that, that you know, just uh, come into Jesus Christ and I can go right back and do everything I've done before just the way I've done it and God is going to be a happy camper in heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. And sadly, we've missed the point about this whole thing. It's Truthfully, it's a hard sell. John MacArthur wrote a book. Wrote the book and the title of the book is, It's Hard to Believe. It's Hard to Believe. Uh, I don't always agree with him on everything, but I agree with him on this book. It's hard to believe. You know what he teaches in that book? He takes everything in the Bible that's hard for people to embrace and puts it out on the front shelf and says, if we told them everything, they'd run. And I mean, he lays it out. He takes all the passages of the New Testament and lays them out front and says, here's what God expects of you. Here's what has to happen in your life. God said it. That's the way it has to be. My point is this. You see, you can confront people, and if you were to confront people with the ideal, and many people don't, telling them they need to repent of their sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, separate from sin in their life, they say, wait a minute. I want Jesus. I don't want to give up my sin. I, I want Jesus Christ. I want to go to heaven. I want a written guarantee that when I die, I go to heaven. But I don't want to quit all this stuff. I enjoy this stuff. Then you're not ready for Jesus Christ yet. Because a person who comes to Christ has literally to turn his back on everything else. That's what repentance is. It's making an about face. Going this direction and realizing this is not getting what I want. This is not going where I want to go. So I turn my back on this kind of life and I head in the other direction. Cross of Christ being my focal point. And I'm saying to you, that's exactly what the Scriptures teach. I learned this week and read again, and let me read it to you just to refresh your memory, that in conversion there's a great transaction. And one of the great passages on conversion in the Bible is that of Zacchaeus. It's in Luke chapter 19. You ought to keep this one in mind so you can refer to it occasionally just to read it to remind yourself of what conversion does. You see, we're in a society that thinks you can get saved and there's absolutely no change take place. They throw out 2 Corinthians 5, 17, don't even look at it. But the fact is, conversion brings a change. And here's the story in Luke chapter 19. And look at these 10 verses. Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Uh, Jericho was called the city of the palms, so it was a more of a resort vacation kind of place. And so Jesus Christ never spent a lot of time in Jericho. And not only because it had some cursed circumstances in the past, but for the fact that it had turned into somewhat of a, a slowed down, slowed pace kind of place. Jesus Christ is always seen going to it and through it but never staying in it. Verse 2, And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. Remember, the publicans had to bid for this job. They paid the Roman government a price to get the privilege of being a publican, and that was the guy who went around and collected taxes. But you had to pay for it. You had to, he had to bribe for it, if you please. And he was rich. You'd expect that. If you, uh, a man owned $100 worth of taxes for the year and you charged him $500, you kept the four, paid Rome one, and you were happy campers. That's the system. I think it was the first mafia, but that's neither here nor there. Verse 3, And he sought to see Jesus who he was and could not for the press. Because he was little of stature. He ran before, climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was passed that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up, and he saw him, and he said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. It's one point about verse 5 you ought never miss. And that is that you can run, you can climb, but you can't hide. Our Lord knows where you are every moment, every hour of every day. I mean... Goes right to this sycamore tree. Looks up and says, Zacchaeus, wonder where are you doing up there, buddy? Come on down. I'm going to go to your house today. You can't hide when the Lord's looking. By the way, nobody searches for Christ. 
Christ is always searching for us. And it's a point case illustration well. Verse 6, and he made haste. He came down. He received him joyfully, verse 6 says. When they saw it, that is, they, the press, the other people around, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be a guest with a man that's a sinner. Well, at least Zacchaeus left no doubt about on which side of the fence he was on. I'd rather see a man very clearly defined as a sinner than I would for a guy who's, you know, does this and acts like a Christian, then he does this and acts like a sinner, and does this and acts like a Christian, then he does this and acts like a, a saint. Uh, it's just very good if you've got a guy who's one side of the fence or the other. Zacchaeus was. Everybody knew it. He's a sinner. This guy is a sinner. Pure and simple sinner. Verse number 8. Zacchaeus stood, said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man of false accusation, I restore him fourfold or four times. Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for as much as he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. What's interesting in this story is everything that Zacchaeus said. One, he says, I give. I give. In verse number 8, he said, the Lord, he tells the Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. That's a good transaction from a man who was greedy, who was a crook, who was a publican. And that's certainly indicative of the fact that something had happened in Zacchaeus' heart. There's a change. And then he not only says, I give to the poor the half of my goods, but he says also, if I've taken any by anything by a false accusation, I'll restore it four times for what I took. Our Lord sees this and notes very clearly, verse 9, by these and evidences thereof, salvation is in this place. Salvation has come to this man's house and to this man's heart. Now, friend, I say to you, if salvation has come to your heart, there ought to be some evidences. And that's what really the Bible is talking about in Romans chapter 6. Sanctification should be evident. Should be evident. When, I, when a person is justified, sanctification will follow with no if, ands, or buts about it. Sanctification and justification cannot, cannot be divided. Our society wants to divide them. You can go over here and get justified. Everything's okay and fine. Now you're going to live like you want to. No, you can't. If justification is a reality in your life, sanctification will be a reality in your life. The Bible teaches that. And that's where we've missed it. We've acted as if you can be justified over here and then just go in here and do whatever you wish and act in any way. That's not what the Scriptures are teaching. And what you understand is you cannot separate justification and sanctification. There are, as it were, twins that cannot be separated without killing both. It's the same, uh, same ideal as a motor and a car. You can't have a car, technically, that does not have a motor in it. Oh, you can have one that says in, a, in a, a salvage yard somewhere, but I'm talking about a functional car. It has to have a motor. Justification is the motor. And the car is sanctification. That's what people see, and that's what, as it were, gives evidence of it being a vehicle of mobility. So the fact of the matter is, justification declares us righteous in Christ. It does not make us righteous in Christ. See, we want to make us right. We want something outside of ourselves to make us all we have to be so we can hang up our towel and pull off our shirts and sit down and say, okay, I'm going to heaven. That's good enough for me. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what the Bible teaches at all. Sanctification is God's work in my heart to make me holy, to conform me to the likeness of Jesus Christ. And I have to cooperate with that. I cannot balk at that. I cannot say, I'm not going there. I'm not going to do that. I, you can't do that. If you've been justified, sanctification is a process that comes right along with justification. 
And I tell you, you have a responsibility and God does a work of grace. But the fact is, you still have a part in this. Let me show you. Chapter 6, three words, and don't you forget them. You can live them. I, I list them here as the code word. A code word. It's K-R-Y, cry. K-R-Y, cry. You ought to write that in the margin of your Bible somewhere, and then you ought to look at verse 3, 11, and 13 in Romans chapter 6. It makes my point. There is something you must do if you've been saved by the grace of God in order for sanctification to have its full work in your heart. Look at verse number 3 first. In verse number 3, he simply sets forth, Know ye not that so many of you as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death. The K is for know. There's something you have to know. For sanctification to work and do its job, the first thing is there's something to know. We'll get into that next week. Second word is in verse number 11. In verse number 11, he says, Likewise, reckon. The word in the Greek carries with it the idea of count or, or consider. Reckon, count or consider. Verse 11, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Then the word cry, K-R, the letter letter Y is in verse 13. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. We'll get into each of those a little bit further when we come to them in the text. But for now, just write the word cry beside your Bible and realize that every day you get up, you have a responsibility in being justified by faith. You have a responsibility to allow sanctification to be at work in your life. And it is this three-letter code word. Know, reckon, and yield. If you don't do that, you're going nowhere fast. And what you always will do, and I say this flatly and straightforwardly, you cast doubt on your justification. You see, because what we've always done is separated them. We put justification over here and sanctification over there and act as if that, that you grow in this. You grow in this. Oh, you sure you grow in grace. But if you've been justified, you will eventually be fully sanctified. And right now, you ought to be being sanctified. And you do that by your cooperation with reading God's Word, absorbing God's Word, and acting upon it. That's what the know is all about. Knowing some things. And that's what I have the message title as it is. Christian living, it depends on Christian learning. If you don't read the Word, you're not going to be Christ-like. Impossible to be Christ-like and not learn from, grow in, and know what God says about Himself and His people. Impossible. And yet we have people who are trying. We have people who will read the Word. They will not read the Word on a daily basis. And yet they hope some way, somehow, miraculously, God's going to make them like Christ. Ain't going to happen. Folks come into marriage and get into the relationship of husband and wife. Let me tell you something. You want a good marriage, you better make dead sure that you're in the Word every single day. And you better make sure the people you marry are in the Word every single day. Because that's what wears off, rings off, works away at all those naughty things in marriage that makes you come to understand what this passage teaches. The process of sanctification matters in every relationship. And this passage of Scripture helps us to see that. Note something else, and this is somewhat of an overview. I hope we get further than that. But in the first 14 verses, which we read to you this morning, this whole chapter centers around two questions. The first of those questions is in verse 1. So out beside verse 1, you ought to write Q1. Question 1 is, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That's the question. And for the next 13 verses, he answers that. 
So for the next 13 verses, after we get through this introduction, that's what we'll be dealing with. That's the question on the table, and we'll talk about the answer to it. But when you come to verse number 15, you have the second question. There are two questions in this chapter, and the whole chapter centers around these two questions. In verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? That's the question. Put another way, verse 1's question is, Shall we sin in order to obtain more grace? And verse number 15's question is, Shall we sin because we're under grace? I mean, does that give us a liberty, a license? That's what the two questions are. And all the verses that follow them on either side are answering to those two questions. So that's what we'll do for the next period of time. So with that said, let's dig in. Verse number 1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What this says is that there are folks in our society, and you may or may not have met them, who denounce the doctrine of justification by faith. There are people who denounce it, who deny it, people who say that it's absolutely not true. You know why they say that? Because of the question of verse number one, of which the Apostle Paul was addressing. They are saying, if you're justified by faith and not by works, then that gives you a license to sin. You could be saved and just sit back and say, hey, I'm saved. I'm on my way to heaven. Been declared righteous through Christ. And they'd say, then you go out and do whatever else you do that's wrong. It looks as if that's a license to sin. That's not right. And so they say, to counter that, they say, well, here's what you've got to do. To go to heaven, you've got to do this. There's a song years ago that uh, was about the rapture of the church. And it was says, the song was something like, I'll see you in the rapture. I never heard such unscriptural song in my entire life. Because the whole premise of that song was built on, I'll see you in the rapture if you do this and you do this and you do this and you do that. Then you get to go to heaven. When I was growing up and a, and a guy would die in a car accident, almost invariably there'd be a group of denominational people who'd ask this question, did they find any beer in his car? That guy could have been teaching Sunday school on a Sunday morning and going down the road and found an aluminum can and picked it up and tossed it in his trunk. And, and I'll tell you, the first question out of their mouth would be, did they find any can beer cans in his car. You know what they were driving at? Because they believed, one, they did not believe in justification by faith. They believed salvation by works, meaning that when you died, you better be fully confessed of all your sins because then and only then did you get to go to heaven. By the way, it usually fell in the camp of those people who don't believe in eternal security. If you don't believe in eternal security, you know what you believe in? You believe you got to keep all the, 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 the credits straight. You know, if you sin, you got to stop. Say, well, I sinned. Lord, God, forgive me. I'm sorry I sinned. And you got to keep all the records clear or you die and go to hell. Let me tell you something. That's a work salvation. You can call it what you want to, but if you don't believe in eternal security, you believe in work salvation. You believe that you somehow have got to keep the record clear and have got to somehow keep in God's good favor in order to go to heaven. That's not true. Justification is by faith alone, in Christ alone, and it has absolutely nothing to do with you somehow getting God to make the first payment and you keeping up the rest. That's not what it's about. And yet, that's exactly what those folks have. But what the folks Paul the Apostle deals with in verse number 1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? They're saying, look, let's look at it this way. If God gives grace when sin has been committed, and He did when He saved us, they say, well, wouldn't it make more sense that the more sin we commit, the more grace He dispenses? And therefore, grace it honors and glorifies God. Wouldn't that make it sense that God gets more glory for the more sin we commit? My goodness, what a warped idea. But that's what the point is made here. And I say to you that Paul the Apostle is not the only guy that had to deal with this. 
We sometimes back in our, our Wednesday night talk from the book of Jude. Little book of Jude. A few verses in it, but here are two of them. Jude was getting ready to write the epistle, and somehow the Holy Spirit changed his mind on how he would address it. Here's what verse 3 says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. And then he says in verse 4, For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, listen carefully, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, and denying the only Lord God in our Lord Jesus Christ. Lasciviousness is similar to that thing of a license to sin. Living a lifestyle that reflects the fact that the grace of God may have appeared, but what I'm doing is I'm using the grace of God to cover my sin. I've given me a permission that I can go and do whatever I will. By the way, let me remind you that some churches that teach that you can lose your salvation, they are literally on the other side of this issue, but the point made about it is they say you have to work to counter up the sin. You have to do good works and you've got to die in purity if you expect to go to heaven. Let me, let me give you a verse of scripture that I use, I guess, as often as any when I'm dealing with someone who questions eternal security. And you ought to keep this one close because it makes five statements about eternal security as far as I'm concerned that will help you. It's in John chapter 10. It's in verse number 27. John's gospel, chapter 10 and verse number 27. Listen carefully, John 10, 27. So if you run into somebody and says, I don't believe in eternal security, I think this is the classic text on eternal security. John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. To me, that's as good and as clear a statement concerning eternal security as you have. And if you check it carefully, you have five statements the Lord makes there. And all of them confirm and support the idea that once you're in Jesus Christ, once you're in His fold, you belong to Him, then there's absolutely no way, any way, anybody's going to get you away from Him and the salvation He's provided. That's eternal security. The fact of that is, that does not mean that if someone comes along as Paul was teaching and teaches justification by faith, does not mean that it is a license to go out and live as you will. In fact, that's what the whole chapter number 6 is about. But let me tell you where they got this idea. Chapter number 1 or 6 and verse 1 where the question is, comes from chapter 5 of Romans and verse number 20 where it says, Moreover the law entered that the offense or the sin might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. They, they took this whole question from that point of view. And they were saying, well, look, you just said over in Romans chapter 5 and verse number 20 that where there was sin, grace much more abounded. It showed up more frequently. Then wouldn't it make sense that, that, that we sin more and we'd see more grace? That's not what Romans 5.20 is saying. Let me tell you what Romans 5.20 is saying. Romans 5.20 is saying that no sin is too great and no sinner is too bad that the grace of God cannot reach him. That's what Romans 5.20 is saying. It is not saying to Christians, since you're saved by the grace of God, justified by faith, you can go out and live any way you want to because there's grace that will match up to the problem of sin in your life. That's not what he's saying. It's saying there is no sin that grace cannot reach. There is no sinner that grace cannot address. That's what it's saying. And by the way, in verse number 1, what shall we say then shall we continue? Big word. Big word. That word continue in Romans 6 has the ideal of habitual persistency. 
Paul is not saying and does not mean a believer who occasionally falls into sin or walks into a sin because every believer is going to do that as long as in the flesh. What he is talking about here is what we call a pattern of life. That pattern that he had before he was saved and he is right back in the same pattern he was after he's saved. There's two bad attitudes that people have concerning personal attitude of sin. The first one I call simply the sinful subjection attitude. I mean by that I've met people in this city of Franklin, Indiana who said to me, look, I'm, I, I'm going to sin. Yeah, that's just the way it is. In fact, I call it a fatalistic attitude. You know, I'm going to sin, so hey, no, I fight it. You know, That's just the way it is. People sin. I'm going to sin. That's it. Sinful subjection. They just sort of bow down to sins. And that's the way it's going to be. The other is the sinless perfection. And that's to our friends who believe that you can actually get to a point in your Christian life where you never sin again. That's just as bad just as bad to be fatalistic and, and submit to sin in that sense of subjection to it as it is to think that you're sinlessly perfect. You are not. You will not be ever in this earth, on this earth, in this life. That only comes when you reach that point of glorification when you're with the Lord. Now look at verse number one, ask the question, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse two gives you the answer and it starts out with a, a word, the strongest idiom of uh, what we call the repudiation in the whole of the New Testament. God forbid. Two words, but they just echo through Paul's epistle. He uses it some 14 times in his epistles. He used it back over in chapter 3, which we most recently studied, three times over there. God forbid. God forbid. It's a word of outrage. It's as if to say it takes this sense of outrage that such a thought could even be considered. That is, that sins could somehow bring glory to God. And that's what the question is all about. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound so God gets more glory? That very idea, Paul says, that is absolutely an outrageous thought. The very idea that sin, that what caused Christ to die on the cross, to be beaten to a pulp, to bleed as he did, and to have a crown of thorns forced upon his head, and his side riven with a sword, all because of sin, and for us to come back and say that that horrible, wicked kind of thing that the only begotten Son of God died for, could it in any way, that sin, bring glory to God? No, no. Sin never glorifies God. And that's Paul's point in this particular case. Christ died to put away sin, it is inconceivable that Christians would live in it. That's what he makes the point of. God forbid that Christians thought they could continue in sin. God forbid such an idea. And he asked that question to explain it further in verse number two. How shall we, Paul puts himself in the group, how shall we, Paul and other believers that are dead to sin, live any longer therein? And you ought to note carefully the question he asked. How can we or shall we that are dead to sin? You should note there, he didn't say who ought to be dead to sin. He said we are dead to sin. It's a misunderstanding of the scripture to say that we ought to die to sin. Oh, I've said it, I'm sure. It's a misunderstanding. That's not what the scriptures teach. The scriptures teach you are dead to sin. Now act like it. Now live like it. So that's what he says. How can it be that we that are already dead to sin would live any longer back there in sin? How can we do that? How could it be possible? And his point is it's not possible because that's not the way the program works. I would call your attention to something else that, that in one, once you were a lost sinner, you were dead in sin. And now as a believer, he's calling on you to understand you are dead to sin. And I say this does not say that 
sin is dead to you. Don't ever think that it is. Our sin has this magnetism about it that uh, the devil knows exactly our weaknesses, I'm sure, to a degree. And I think without doubt that he brings them to us and hands them over to us and then we fall for the bait. But I urge you to understand that what the scriptures are teaching and what this passage of scripture along with others are teaching as verse number two says, how shall we that are dead to the sin live any longer therein? What he is asking you to do and understand is understand your relation to sin since you know Christ. And you know what that relationship to sin is? It is the relationship of a dead person to any motivation. He said, if you just understood how dead you are, then this would come to play. He's not saying that when Christ died, we died with him in a sense that we were physically hung on the cross. But we were with him and we died in him by virtue of the same union that we have with Christ that we had with Adam in the garden. I wasn't there when Adam sinned. But Adam's sin was, as it were, accrued and accounted to my account. But the same way when Christ died on the cross, it happened to him. Chapter number 6, Paul hammers away at this. You see, in verse number 6 of chapter 6, he says, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Paul hammers at this truth all the way through his epistles. Again, by definition, remind yourself of this, where Paul uses it in verse number 2. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Death is not continual. Death is not continual. Somebody walks into this room, we pull out a gun and we shoot the guy. Will I come back tomorrow and say that guy is dying? No. He died on Sunday when pastor shot him. Does he, does he die on Tuesday again? No. He died on Sunday when we shot him. Let me tell you something and don't you let this get away from you. When Christ died on the cross for your sin and when you believed on Christ as your Savior, you died to sin. Now, what you've since done since that, I have no way of telling and no way of prognosticating, but I can tell you this, whatever you did, you died to sin back there. Now, if you tried to resurrect it, if you tried to relive it, that's, that's between you and the Lord. But the passage of Scripture that Paul is hammering at in this text of Scripture is saying you're dead to sin. You are dead to sin. How can we that are dead to sin already, already died to sin, how can we live any longer therein? And that's the question that Paul the Apostle lays out before us. Now, by the way, it's not that a believer at any moment before he goes to be with the Lord is totally without sin. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about in this is that when we were born again, he totally separated us from the controlling power of sin and a life of sin for which Christ died on the cross. That's what he's saying. I close with this reflection upon the fact of Christ dying on the cross for us. I, I was sitting at my desk and these things came to me the other day. Just think about this. The, the trial of Jesus Christ was illegal. The charges against him were, were absolutely false and forged. And think about it. Those witnesses were paid off. And from every point of view, from earth's perspective, Jesus Christ on the death on the cross was a victory for injustice and inhumanity. But Jesus Christ, who was God in the flesh, knew all that. And he knew how ludicrous this whole thing was, how much of a mockery it was of the judicial system. He knew that. And yet he went to the cross and died there. It tells you a lot of things. Number one, it's, it tells you, which sometimes books and, and sometimes movies set forth in a different setting, that the Roman government had a part in our salvation. Roman government had nothing as a part of our salvation. 
God used the Roman government to put our Lord on a cross as a sacrifice on an altar. But there is no merit in Rome's government for what they did, and it does not encourage a salvation for us. Christ died at the Father's hands, and don't ever forget that. When God shut the lights out and Jesus Christ was on the cross in darkness, extrude from Him a punishment and a payment for all of our sins, and He did it in the darkness. And I say to you that it is amazing that Jesus Christ, knowing everything about all these inconsistencies of government, He still went to the cross knowing that the Father's plan was not being corrupted or polluted by what the Roman government was doing about it. Then the question is, and it's a fair question and one that I've thought about and written into other sermons, why did Jesus Christ die? Here are four things very quickly and I leave them with you. Why did Jesus Christ die? Number one, 1 John chapter 4 and verse number 9, In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might, listen carefully, live through Him. So the first reason Christ died for you is so that you might live through Him. The second thing is why He died is that we might live like Him. In Romans chapter 6, in verse number 11, it says, Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord, that we might live like Him. Not only live through Him, that's salvation, but might live like Him, that's sanctification. And then there's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in verse 15, he says, And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but live unto him which died for them and rose again. That we might not only live through him, get salvation, live like him, have sanctification, but also live for him, that service. What he expects from every one of his children, everyone who has trusted him as Lord and Savior, they trusted him, believed on him. Then the fact of the matter is he expects service of us, spiritual service, spiritual work. And then there's a fourth reason why he died, and that's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we awake or we sleep, that is, we die, we should live together with Him. You know why He died? So you could live with Him. Not only live through Him, not only live like Him, not only live for Him, but someday live with Him. If that's not security, I don't know what is. And what it all circles around is the fact that justification and sanctification are twins that cannot be separated. If you know Jesus Christ as Savior, then people ought to also know of you that you are being sanctified. That there's a process going on in your life. That you're culling out the things that are displeasing the Lord. And you're adding things that honor and glorify Him. Let me say it and say it forthrightly. That's why Christians ought not smoke and drink and do drugs. That's why Christians ought not do anything to these bodies which are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's why you ought not do anything to this body that in any way confuses the process of people seeing that you've trusted Christ as Savior, but living like you've never met Him. Is He Lord of your life, or is He just a good thing that you've added to the list of good things that's happened? Are you one of those kind of people who come to the altar at a rock concert and say, hey, yeah, I'll take Jesus, I'll add Him to my list. Let's see, I've got, uh, I've got uh, Hare Krishna, I've got uh, Buddha, I've got, yeah, I'll add Him, that's no problem, I've got room on this page. Is that the kind of deal it is? You'll forgive me, but that's ludicrous, foolish, and stupid. Christ is Christ alone, the anointed one and the Savior of the Lord. He is that or nothing. And there is no room in His 
quote package for anybody else to share the spotlight or the headlines. See, the Christ is all, the Christ is nothing. And this passage in Romans chapter 6 sets forth this idea that Paul was having trouble in this church. And it was very obvious. These people saying, look, there has to be something to do with works. You just can't have this thing about salvation by justification, by faith alone. It just can't be that way because obviously the way you're teaching it, we'd have a license to sin. We'd get saved and then we'd go out and do more things because the more sin we committed, the more grace that would abound. And that would bring more glory to God. That's ludicrous. That's foolish. That's stupid. And Paul's saying, you're right. It is foolish and stupid. But when you try to say that I get to heaven because I'm, I've been living a pure and perfect life and therefore I've been declared righteous, it's just as foolish. Salvation is of the Lord. It is not of man. He gives it to us as a free gift. And this morning, if you do not know Jesus Christ as Savior, He doesn't want your works. There will be plenty of room for works after you know Christ. But he does not want you to work or act like a certain person or behave in a certain manner in order that you get to go to heaven. Heaven is not a place for people who tried to work a certain work and do a certain thing and live a certain way. That's not what it is. Heaven is a prepared place for prepared people who've been saved by the marvelous grace of God, trusted in Christ alone. That's where heaven is all about. And if it's not your home, if it's not your place to go when you leave this place, then this place this morning is a place for transaction, translation, for transformation. Come to know Christ this morning by accepting His free gift of salvation. If you know the Lord, as most of you do, then go from this place today realizing that if you've been justified by the grace of God, you're being sanctified by the grace of God. And you have an obligation to know, to reckon, and to yield as you go away from here this morning and make dead sure that you bring honor and glory to the Lord in all that you do. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the Holy Scriptures and for the privilege we have to handle them and look at them, read them, study them, and preach them. And I pray today as we come to this invitation of anyone, man, woman, boy, or girl in this building who has never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, they might do so. Help them to understand fully and completely that Christ has paid it all. It's all to Him that we owe. And I pray we'd understand fully that sanctification goes along with justification. It's the twin that cannot be separated. There is no such thing as being justified and then living the life of sin that we've always lived. When we were justified, we were declared sin or dead to sin. And how is it possible that we who are dead to sin would live any longer therein? It's not possible. It's a sarcastic kind of question. God forbid that we even consider such a thought. So I pray today that you would help each member of the New Life Baptist Church who professes faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to be aware of the sanctification process that's taking place in their lives day in and day out and to cooperate with the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to see that transformation take place. And for our friends here this morning who have never believed on Christ as Savior, they do not know what it is to be free from the burden of sin and dead to sin. They have no idea about that. I pray for them today that they may this morning surrender, give up as it were, as the Lord Jesus Christ, as He did with Zacchaeus, pursued Him up a tree. I pray that they may feel a sense of pursuit here in this pew and sense that the Lord and the Holy Spirit have been coming after them, working toward them to draw them, to encourage them to come to faith in Himself. He never forces us against our will, and He will not do so today. So I pray, Father, that they'll fully surrender to Him and trust Christ as Savior, be gloriously saved even here in this place today. So speak to our hearts and bring forth the fruit that you've ordained for this hour that will count in eternity to come. Help us not to make decisions based on shallow thought, 
but on biblical truth that we've heard and considered even this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? And if you need a hymn book, turn to 282, just as I am. As God has spoken to your heart this morning about your standing before Him, then I hope this morning that you'll surrender all and come to the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Come just as you are. And I hope that that'll happen even now as we sing. 282, verse 1. If God has spoken to your heart, you come, please. Together. Just as I am. If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? You've never trusted Christ as your Savior. We invite you to come. God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? Thank you very much for your time and your attention. I appreciate both, and I do appreciate very much your listening and being attentive. I'm grateful for that. And may the Lord bless you for doing so. I hope you'll be back with us for the evening service tonight. And our missionary guest going to Mexico will be here. I hope you'll come and share in the service with us at 6 o'clock. Thank you so much for coming today. And if you missed Sunday school today, I hope you'll come to be with us in Sunday school next Lord's Day at 930. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father, thank you for this day and for the opportunity we've had to be in your house thus far of this day. And we look forward even now to the evening service with our guest missionary coming in. Pray you'll bless our time then. Thank you for our Sunday school teachers and the diligence they give to study and prepare and share. And I do thank you for the word that we've gotten there and also here in the worship service. I pray now drive these truths home to our heart and may our lives be changed in reflection of them. Thank you for your goodness, your grace to us, and guide and direct as we go. Give safety to your people in their travels and do bring us back to the evening service tonight. And do bless our guests as they arrive. Pray you'll give them safety in coming in and then help us to cause them to know they're welcomed here. Be kind and gracious and encouraging to them. Thank you again for answering prayer and on behalf of our fellowship this week and yet for others who still need help, we ask for your grace to abound in their lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You're dismissed.